I think sometimes we spend too much money and time on those quick fix uh, things like, you know, just wine and coffee and, and fun and, and lavish things when our health and reconnecting to the environment are, are, are so important. And, you know, if we're not going to make those small sacrifices and changes, then We've got to stop complaining about the price of iceberg lettuce. <laughs> Today on Dirty Linen, we continue to talk about supply chains, costs, all those juicy things that make such a difference in our lives. Uh, we're going to catch up today with an old mate of Dirty Linen. Simone Watts is a farmer. She is chef at the to-be-built Barragunda on the Mornington Peninsula. And I think she's got a bit of a unique perspective on this whole shebang coming at the, yeah, the supply of food, the cooking of food, the serving of food to people from all different angles. Simone, welcome back to Dirty Linen. Hi, Denny. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really good to have you here and thank you for being chilly in winter and nevertheless taking the time to sit still and have a chat. I really appreciate it. Uh, tell us where, how you see things at the moment. You know, we're hearing so much about costs, how difficult it is for, for hospitality, also for consumers. Where do you sit on all of this? Yeah, look, to be honest, I'm, I think I'm not as surprised as a lot of people seem to be. And I kind of feel like people are leaning into I don't want to say blaming, but it seems to be the case a lot of the time of, you know, the last couple of years um, and um, the extreme weather conditions that we've been having. And it's, yeah, people are sort of yeah seemingly surprised that we're in this state that we're in when the reality is like the fragility of the food systems and the dependency that we've had on mass commercial farming uh, has been around for a really long time. And I think, you know, these cracks have been forming and getting deeper and deeper. And, you know, may, maybe COVID was the icing on the cake. Maybe that's the wrong analogy, a pretty crappy, dry, crumbly cake. But <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, unless we take a really hard look at what we've been doing for a long time, and if we don't take that time to reconnect with communities with our farms and country then you know this is not going you know this isn't something that's just happening this season and that's suddenly going to you know get better in in, in next season by next season or in by the end of the year unless we really start to make some serious changes and look at the mistakes that that we've been making there is such sort of forward impetus and growth impetus in our society and you know it's obviously got us into all sorts of in difficulties, I mean, existential ones, really. I mean, yeah. where do you, I mean, how do we turn this around? It, the scale of it seems overwhelming. Oh, yeah, look, it, it's it's really daunting. And, you know, I think we can look at this at two from two different angles and one is from, I guess, the general consumer and one is from the industry point of view. If you start looking like from the general consumer point of view and especially, I guess, um, city-based people, um, you know, it, it's not always the case, but ultimately by design, cities are not sustainable. You're looking at a large population of people that are 100% dependent on surrounding rural areas for their food supply. And as cities grow and population grows, we see more and more native forests destroyed and the need to develop agriculture on land that isn't overly arable. Um, which, you know, ends up meaning heavy tilling, synthetic fertilisers, um, destroying trees on, on, on water banks, which then leads to erosion, which leads to floods, which we're, you know, seen a lot of this year. 
Um, and, you know, in those scenarios when you're looking at farms nearby that have mass monocrops that are completely flattened, that's passed on to supply chains of, of prices being pushed up. But we kind of, we always blame that on the immediate thing that's happened, not, you know, the decades of poor colonised land that has happened before that that has, has got us to this. So, you know, I think for especially in an urban environment, we need to start thinking outside of the box of how we can produce more food closer to the city and, and in the city. You know, people like uh, Yaus that um, did Future Food have, have given amazing examples of things that you can do within your home. Maybe some of them are n- not everyone's going to have a, a mushroom, mushrooms growing in their shower as much as I would, <laughs> I would love to have that. Um, I think growing our own food in a city environment has to uh has to start being at the forefront of of what we're what we're thinking about yeah i think that's amazing and anyone who hasn't listened to our podcast with joe barrett about future food system um search that one up it is really incredible to think about housing in a different way which joe spacker did with future food system currently being dismantled in federation square in melbourne uh but been an, it's been an incredible showcase of a, a building that grows food so every uh, every part of the building supports this idea, this ecosystem idea where it, um, you know, nothing is wasted. Um, yeah, all the waste is goes into creating energy. Uh, and yeah, all kinds of different foods, a really remarkable array, everything from, yeah, insects to mushrooms, as you say, Simone, um, but also chickens and fish are grown in, in this one house. Um, it, I think, you know, the great thing about speaking to people like yourself and like Yoast and like Joe Barrett is this idea of this sense of possibility. It also makes me think of another great chat we had on this podcast with Shashi Singh, not far from you at Avani Winery. And just the way that she spoke about coming to that 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 winery in Red Hill and starting to feed the soil and work towards a biodynamic style of viticulture and just how welcome the land made her feel how the you know the insects started speaking to her you know fruit started to grow on the trees uh it 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 gave me a sense of yeah it's not we're not maybe we're not that far from big change if we want to make it no 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 look you know shashi's connection to um her particular place down here reminds me of that need to be very connected to country and to your particular tower that you're growing in. You know, she came to an area that predominantly grows Chardonnay and Pinot and for her that wasn't working and she put in her Syrah grapes and, uh, you know, they boomed and make the most beautiful Syrah that the peninsula has seen. But that's only because she stopped and listened to to her surroundings. And, you know, I think um, I think that's incredibly important and, and sometimes a little bit harder in an urban environment to do, but, you know, if you're in – a backyard and four walls around you to to feel that connection but it's quite easy to do that if you if you do start growing some of your own things you know you have that that pride for your food uh you know exactly where it's coming from and um it, it gives i think a great sense of, of purpose as well but i think you know i, I always push with people that it's it's really it's not that hard and it's very inexpensive. You know, we're seeing this, the lettuce, the, the lettuce fiasco that um, <laughs> seems to be on headlines everywhere at the moment. Um, 
but like I'll probably regret doing this because it's my favorite kind of lettuce and it'll probably sell out after this but um down here we've got a beautiful seed producer producer called um transition farm Peter and Robin um run the farm and they grow uh or they produce biodynamic seed and I think you know in this consumer world we've been driven to just mass identities of um overbred varieties things like iceberg lettuce and stuff like that but you know people forget that there's hundreds and thousands of beautiful heirloom varieties and they um they produce a lettuce called tom thumb lettuce which um, only takes 36 days to grow from seed to plate now most iceberg lettuces take about three months so 90 to 120 days to grow from seed to uh to to being on your table which when you think about it something that's taken three to four months to grow ten ten dollars probably really isn't that much but um so these these little tom thumb lettuces only take 36 days you can go onto their website you can buy 250 seeds for four dollars and 95 cents that's 250 heads of lettuce for five dollars that you can have in your backyard and if you really wanted to you could then let one go to flower, which will then turn to seed, collect your own seed and you'll let, never have to buy lettuce ever again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is that is really extraordinary. That's some great maths. Um, yeah. yeah, really quite. It, it just, it, you know, and it, it's, it's really not hard. You can take those seeds, you can throw them in, you know, a $5 bag of Bunnings potting mix, put a little bit of soil on top and water it and you will have lettuce There'll be no waste. You know, you can just pick the leaves you need because everyone knows when you buy an iceberg lettuce, half of it sits in the bottom of the fridge and starts to look skanky and you just feel sorry for it until you eventually hide it in the compost Shame with a lot of shame. <laughs> oh, my God. Iceberg shame. I have so been there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what kinds of things have you learnt, Simone, from the farming that you've been doing at Barragunda? Well, I think, you know, it, it started with because how long sort of the restaurant was taking to get across the line with council approval. I just started growing some veg to start working the soil and getting the soil health up. But from there, it went on to growing a lot of produce for the pop-up events that I was doing. And I realized that there was a lot to learn with timing. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, things take a lot longer than you think, which for me has probably been the biggest learning curve for empathy for farmers of like what I was just saying with, you know, lettuce and, and brassicas taking, um, you know, three to four months to grow. Things like broccoli can be in the ground for five or six months before, before you get ahead. So, you know, just that, that forward planning for me has been a, just a giant change in the way that I have to write menus. You know, you, usually you'd write a seasonal menu, but you're, you're writing it a few weeks before you're changing that menu at the moment, I'm, I'm sitting down with um, the two farmers that we've got coming on for spring and summer, and we're writing our summer menus at the moment because they need to be doing their crop plans and organising seeds. And, and so th there's just so much more pre-thought and communication that needs to happen, which is what I think is falling apart with um, the restaurant supply chains thing side of things at the moment because – there's so many middlemen that are getting food from farms into inner city restaurants that we're not able to have that communication anymore. And, you know, I'm hear, hearing people saying, I don't really understand why this is this price here and this is this price there, but they can really never get back to the source to understand, um, to understand why those prices are increasing. Yeah. It, it, and there's, 
it, it goes both ways, doesn't it? Because farmers don't see where their food ends up. And I know that, you know, uh, uh, they put so much work into it and then just that it just gets sort of disconnected from them and just goes into this system can be really demoralising. I think especially when, you know, there's so much food waste, some of that's on farm, but a lot of that's at various points along the supply chain. I mean, I think it would be more enriching at both ends for people to, you know, be able to have a a continuous narrative of produce. Yeah, certainly. Like, I I really don't know what, well, well, I do know, but like where we went wrong in in that fallout and, and how we managed to put so many other people in into the, that food system with with logistics and getting things you know from from a to b but sometimes you know from food will go from a farmer to the market from the market to the wholesaler from the wholesaler to the restaurant and you know you've got three or four prices added on within that and you know in a restaurant environment if you're getting an iceberg lettuce for three or four dollars in your kitchen and it's already gone through three hands like it means that your farmers are probably getting 50 cents for something that was in their soil for four months. It just, it doesn't add up. (laughs) It doesn't, it just, it's not okay. And I think, you know, we need to um, really start trying to connect closer to our farmers and, you know, reduce those middlemen um, as much as possible. And the ways to do that goes back to communication, you know, reaching out to different people, reaching out to, logistics companies um you know we've just set up a a new system that we're going to trial for spring and summer for a couple of restaurants in the city with um our farmers that work here we found out that one of the seafood suppliers that comes down to the mornington peninsula every day comes down with a full truck of seafood but they go back with an empty truck so we're going to put our um our veg onto the truck and it will get delivered to the two restaurants in the city and, you know, that was only through a few people sitting down and going, we, we want your produce, we want to get our produce too, how are we going to make that happen? And um, if you don't, yeah, j- just ask people and, and reach out, then um, it doesn't, um, th- things don't happen. But I think, you know, I've got lots of other sort of ideas of, of ways in which city restaurants can get more direct um, access to produce you know down down on the Mornington Peninsula there is a lot of land down here and a lot of it is um, quotation mark lifestyle properties now (laughs) lifestyle properties are essentially large properties that um, people have some form of agriculture on generally but nine times out of ten that's to avoid land taxes so it's you know it's pseudo agriculture that doesn't necessarily end up on people's plates, but a lot of people are trying to turn that around. And, you know, we've got large restaurant groups with multiple restaurants within the city, all screaming at the price of food at the moment. You know, with this idea that these farms could be subletting to restaurants and rather than having, you know, 30 olive trees that are sitting there doing nothing or six acres with, you know, six cows roaming around them so that they can avoid their tax, Restaurants could be leasing space in, in areas like the Peninsula and the Yarra Valley uh, to, to farm, hire a farmer, which will be a lot cheaper than buying, you know, $12 iceberg lettuces. <laughs> and, you know, if, you, if you're supplying to multiple restaurants in the city, a, a small van, a logistics van that comes a couple of times the week is not, is not that hard to organise. So 
I just, it's time to start thinking outside the box, I think. <laughs> I love that idea. I mean, it's, yeah, my, I've got so many <laughs> thoughts and questions, but yeah, it's sort of like empowered sharecropping in a way where you just take this land that's, um, that's not, not being used to its full potential. And yeah, I mean, maybe there's, uh, yeah, I think for for individual restaurants to all start farming, I mean, you know, we know that many restaurants have started with, you know, a great glow in their hearts to grow their own herbs out the back. And, you know, that can be a challenging um, enterprise for a very busy restaurant. But I think, yeah, to have this, um, you know, a shared farmer. And actually there is one, I know of one or two restaurants that are doing that together, like Manze and Fenton Food and Wine in Melbourne are using shared land out just north of the city to grow their produce. And I know at least Fenton goes there once a week and sort of writes the menu depending on what's growing and what they pick. So I suppose there are people trying this. The, I mean, what do you think, like what about all the scale? I mean, we know why things are like this. It's because we decided that there were, were efficiencies at scale. There are so many of us and we're not all, I guess, focused on, Eat, feeding ourselves in a sustainable way you know a lot of people for a lot of people food is a necessity and an afterthought just something that they need to to fuel to get you know to do the next thing I mean uh, what about can you see a way of dealing with any of those yeah those big businesses those multi-site businesses I mean do you feel like there are opportunities in that or is it just you know a big a big problem well, yeah, look, I think the the efficiencies in scale are actually the things that are starting to crumble because, you know, once upon a time, exactly what you're saying, to be able to, to grow things en masse was more cost effective, it was easier, you know, to grow a whole plot of lettuce, you know, or not, not a whole plot, acres and acres and lettuce, of lettuce, it uses the same fertilizer, the same machinery, and it, it all just uh, is a lot easier. But then when a particular bacteria growth, a particular weather pattern, uh, a particular pest or disease or what have you gets in that loves that iceberg lettuce, you lose all of your crop. And if we go back to what perhaps seems less efficient in some ways, it has more resiliency, more resilience in, a, in the long run if you've got biodiverse crops. And um, yeah, not only do you end up with um, more crops, then you don't have to um, deal with, uh, sorry, lost my train of thought. You don't have to deal with um, taking like a, a bunch of different uh, lettuces and things to, to, to only one place. You can distribute it to, to, to multiple levels. Mm. Yeah, I think also it, you just made me think of a podcast, uh, one of the Fish Tales podcasts on our sister podcast, which I love. Um, so it was a chat with Russell Howe. And, I mean, some of the stuff that he was talking about was around scale and it was around how some of the big buyers can actually create really significant change simply through deciding where to put their money. And, I mean, in some ways it made me feel sort of sad, you know, that it was easier for, let's say, Ikea or Walmart to choose sustainable seafood than the restaurant down the road. But I suppose you think if, you know, if the big money goes in better places, then, you know, there, there has to be some sort of accountability and hopefully a trickle down to people who are just buying, you know, 10 fish a week or whatever it is. Um, 
And actually, speaking of fish, I've just written this story about restaurants and sustainability, and it'll be out the day after this podcast. So look out for that. One of the people I spoke to was um, Nick, who owns Fishbowl, which owns 30 restaurants for like quick service restaurants around the country. And they've just swapped from Tassie farmed salmon to New Zealand king salmon, which is, you know, has better sustainability credentials. It's going to cost them a million dollars extra a year, but that's, that's the, you know, that's what they want to stand behind as a business. And I suppose, so I suppose you think, well, things done at scale, you know, there's still ways of doing things really well, even at scale. We're feeding all these many billions of us. Yeah, look, I was actually just speaking to um, one of um, our veg suppliers um, this morning who buys veg office and he was saying that um, like Woolworths and places like that were selling broccoli for 12 or $15 a kilo and he's currently selling organic broccolis at $8 a kilo and I think that goes back to sort of what I was getting at with um, the, the lettuce varieties or having like one crop and a full one crop or a diverse crop in that at the moment we're seeing some issues up north with weather patterns and lots and lots of lettuce being completely wiped out because it's so wet. But then the organic growers, the organic broccoli growers and lettuce growers who have got a diverse amount of scale haven't lost everything and therefore they're managing to keep their prices fairly regular. So, but, you know, I just thought it was interesting that a a small scale organic grower was managing to keep their prices lower than these so-called efficient large scale operations. Mm, That is so interesting. And I guess, you know, when you take it into food service, it's like people just need to have on the menu, you know, today's salad, not, you know, list out all the different leaves and chefs need to be able to just, I guess, you know, roll with the idea of, you know, the salad or the side, the side of veg, um, and be, you know, nimble enough to make it with whatever's available. Yeah. Oh, look, you know, I think, um, we're at a, at a point in time where restrictive menu writing has to be the norm. And I think, you know, uh, if we're putting things on our menu that are, that are out of season, then you're nine times out of 10, it's going to be something that's grown in a greenhouse pumped full of synthetic fertilizers and nonsense chemicals. And then we turn around and wonder why we've got viruses running through our staff and our, <laughs> our family and our friends, you know, because we're, we're not a very healthy society anymore. Um, so, you know, I, I think that restrictive way of writing menus of going, this is what I can get. Uh, this is a, the price point that I'm in and having the time to explain that to your diners or your family or whoever you're su- serving food through to is really important. The story, the story has to be there. And I think, you know, if you're able to explain to someone, someone while something, why something is more expensive or um, why something's not on the menu today, then th- there has to be some empathy. We have to start appreciating that, um, we can't have everything all the time. I think, um, you know, as Australians, we are so very privileged, um, but I think we've got our priorities a little bit wrong sometimes. You know, I, I so often hear people say, I'd love to grow my own food, but I don't have enough time or organic food is too expensive. And I don't know, I, I think I'm calling bullshit on that for, for the most part. Um, like, 
I think, you know, if you buy a coffee every morning, that's, you know, $25, $30 a week. That is three heads of organic broccoli. If you get your, I don't know, your nails done once a fortnight, that's a full CSA organic box of veggies that could feed your entire family. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone's buying coffee or getting their nails done, but I think sometimes we spend too much money and time on those quick fix uh, things like, you know, just wine and coffee and and fun and, and lavish things when our health and reconnecting to the environment are, are, are so important. And, you know, if we're not going to make those small sacrifices and changes, then we've got to stop complaining about the price of iceberg lettuce. <laughs> yeah, look, I love that. Um, gentle scolding, Simone. <laughs> that, was, that was as PC as I could make it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And I'm sure, you know, as much as you drive around the peninsula and see those um, fake farms, I'm sure if you, you know, drive around the city and see lawns and, yeah, decorative plantings, then I'm sure you could see better uses for those as well. Yes, yes. I think, you know, the the urban nature strip, you know, I, I love when you, you go up to Brunswick and you see, you know, people have pulled out their, their nature strip and they've got, you know, pomegranates and persimmons or added that like double story to their to their garage so that they can grow some grapes and like if it's it's not that hard. It, you know, you just we've got to get over that silly aesthetic of nice green lawn and picket fence and you know, your front lawn can't possibly be for growing food. It has to be aesthetically beautiful and, you know, pull out less agapanthers, more brassicas. That's my motto. <laughs> I love that. I think that is, I, I want to say that on a bumper sticker soon, yeah. <laughs> maybe on your van that um, is going to be, yeah, arriving with seafood and then leaving with vegetables and taking them to restaurants. Yeah. Uh, Simone, <laughs> it's always so inspiring to catch up with you. I really appreciate, yeah, this this part of your thinking around food and, and supply chains. It's really, yeah, it's really activating. I'm going to get some seeds um yeah thank you so much for planting thoughts seeds and all else that you do appreciate your time and your yeah just your passion thanks danny you're welcome chat soon this is dirty linen and i'm danny valent we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is...